0: Sergeant and Mrs. Smith, you are going to love this house.
1: Is that a tub in the kitchen? There's no field manual for finding the right home. But when you do, USAA Homeowners Insurance can help protect it the right way. Restrictions apply.
2: Due to the graphic nature of this tale, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes violence and gore that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Something to note, all myths have many versions and variations. For this episode, we've selected those we felt are the most dramatic and entertaining and supplemented them with additional research into ancient Scandinavian traditions. Because mythology comes from oral tradition, there's a wide variety across sources. Our myths may not always be the version you're familiar with, but we hope you'll enjoy them. Though Hrothgar's eyes felt heavy, and his wife slept blissfully beside him, he tried his best to remain alert, to hear the thing in the night that had troubled him, for more than ten years. The ranks of thanes he commanded were shredded, reduced to a mere pittance of their original number, but worse than all of that was the terrible stench of fear. It lived in the tendrils of mist wrapped around the ghostly manor, a manor once admired throughout all of Denmark. The thing that killed his men was worse than any disease. It was like a deadly shadow, flickering in the candlelight, changing size and form with the smallest gust of wind, whispering through his halls with its murderous savagery, leaving behind severed limbs and flayed organs, a trail of blood disappearing into the wood, where all the terrified men could hear was the strange cackle of unknown monsters. But this night he felt something stir inside him, a feeling he had long forgotten, the faintest shred of hope. For even in his wizened age, he had not laid eyes on a warrior the likes of which he had seen that day, The Geet, who, in but a few hours, had the most tormented of his men, quivering with laughter and gaiety. This was their last chance, to rescue the traditions of his kingdoms and promise a future to his sons and their sons after that. All of this lay on the shoulders of the young warrior from Geet, but King Hrothgar felt all of it come crashing down as the first screams cut through the night. Welcome to Mythology, a Parcast Original. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. You can find all episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythology for free on Spotify, just open the app and type mythology in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're covering one of the most famous and important works of old English literature, a poem that has had a profound impact on the evolution of Western storytelling. Perhaps the most interesting thing about the Old English poem Beowulf is that we know about it at all. Written by an unknown poet, historians believe that the original text was first penned sometime in the 8th century CE, plus or minus 100 years. It was then copied by a scribe in 1000 CE, plus or minus 100 years. Then it lived as the penultimate entry in a manuscript with four other Anglo-Saxon works in a library of hundreds of books for five centuries, plus or minus 100 years. Then as Henry VIII became tired of the Catholic Church and their tedious rules, he disbanded all monasteries in England, Wales, and Ireland, in the process distributing their assets most importantly, their books, to opportunistic collectors. The manuscript containing Beowulf happened to fall into the possession of one Lawrence Noel in 1563. By the 1600s, it found its way to one of the great ancient manuscript collectors of the early 17th century, Sir Robert Cotton. Beowulf was in the hands of a tremendous caretaker and was placed in the collection that would come to be humbly known as the Cotton Library. And what an esteemed library it was. It housed some of the age's most valuable books, attracting the most successful scholars and politicians, the likes of Sir Edward Coke, Sir Walter Raleigh, and Sir Francis Bacon. The collection was passed to Cotton's son, and then his son after that. In a rather gracious mood on his deathbed, Sir John Cotton donated the library to the British nation in 1702. Twenty-nine years later, in 1731, a fire at the Ashburnham House severely damaged many vitally important manuscripts, including the singular copy in existence of Beowulf. But... Tough underdog as our faded poem is, the piece only lost a word here and there, then several more as it naturally degraded over time, and even more when they attempted to rebind it. But the heart of the story remained intact, and in 1786, nearly 800 years after it was first copied by candlelight in the lonely, cold, echoing hallways of an ancient monastery, Beowulf was transcribed again, then translated, then examined, then criticized, It was dismissed as little more than an old children's story treated as fodder for historical discussion, a lens to study the old English language, and a brief glimpse into the past, a record of the moment when paganism gave way to Christianity, when monsters met saints. And then the great J.R.R. Tolkien came along and said, stop treating this like history, treat it like poetry. He argued for its structure, for its beautiful language. Most of all, he argued for the incredible monsters at the heart of the story. Then other people argued, and still more after that. It's a pagan story about pagans, a Christian story about pagans, a nostalgic reflection on the tribes of the past, an epic, an elegy amusing, poorly written, exquisitely written, for entertainment, for documentation. It was a recording of an oral history or many oral histories combined into one. Grendel, the first monstrous antagonist of the poem only vaguely described in the surviving manuscript, was a giant, most likely, or a specter, or symbol of jealousy, or a troll, or a draugr. The dragon at the end represented greed, or the elements, or the ancient world. And on and on the arguments went, and continue to go, assuring us of one thing and one thing alone. The story of Beowulf is not fixed. It continues to influence and change the very nature of our greatest works of fiction. But Tolkien was right about one thing. The heart of Beowulf is not its heroes, but its monsters, creatures of such terrible ambiguity that they have inspired nightmares for over a thousand years. I heard the tale long ago from a nomadic tribe who moved without fanfare or volume. They had the ways of old about them, gave thanks to the many gods praised their ancestors, did those things that now I would call heresy. They told me in three parts and warned me. This word was their memory, their self. If I were to forget, I would doom them to a faceless oblivion. It started with the Danes and the great King Selfing whose deeds and kindness brought his name to the far reaches of Scandinavia. He died with honor and great wealth, which he passed to his son. Safing's son followed in the footsteps of his father and died with honor and great wealth, which he passed to his son, who ruled and died with honor and great wealth, which he passed to his four children. But one of these youths stood above the rest, a lad named Hrothgar. He banded together a troop of young men and led them to several decisive victories over other tribes, ending the times of turmoil for the Danes, after which they found themselves transformed into seasoned veterans. Though they did not know him yet, they were blessed by God and sought his praise.
3: Brothers! Though we do not know who he is yet, we are blessed by God! We deserve the finest of reward! Huzzah!
1: Huzzah!
3: We deserve a feast! The greatest feast the Danes have ever laid eyes on! With boar and mussels and herring, turnips and onions and dates, Beer and mead enough to make Unferth feel momentarily brave. <laughs> and where shall we eat such delicacies? On the grass we've stained with blood. A shielding will feast wherever his hunger takes him. And you, Unferth, would be wise to watch your tongue, lest we want to add some local flavor to our meal. <laughs> <laughs> but mayhaps the coward is right. The Shieldings should have a hall worthy of our feast. A hall worthy of all feasts to come. Huzzah!
2: The king felt inspired then by the glory, by his chanting men, by the fate that brought him such fortune.
3: Let us not stop at Danes. All are welcome from the corners of all Scandinavia. There is work to be done to build the great hall. And I, King Hrothgar, do promise to share my wealth to young and old, rich and poor, so that no man in Denmark shall want again.
2: Word spread quickly of the King's generous offer and workers traveled to the land of the Danes to build the great hall. As it rose, It was easy to see that the king's promise would come to pass. The hall, which they called Heerot, was made with the finest craftsmanship. They cut great beams of oak for the walls and the ceiling. They adorned the interior with gold and horns, covered the chairs with soft furs, and built a fireplace so large it could fit small trees inside. The king was happy with his work, If he had known God, he surely would have thanked him for his blessing.
3: Brothers, sisters, now we truly have a place worthy of celebrating our great victories!
2: The Danes celebrated their labors, and Hrothgar freely shared his wealth. But the hall represented more to them than a simple dining hall. It was where the king's best thanes, or noblemen, could rest and share their brotherhood to show that they would be ready for any battle or invading force that would dare test their might. After their years of war, the hall was a place of safety, one where they all felt comfortable unrolling their bedrolls and laying down amidst the merrymaking. Until, one by one, they all fell asleep. None suspected such a thing could happen. After all, who looks at the shadows and suspects foul play? Who thinks of the mist as evil? Who would be afraid of the carnivorous night air? If any of the men had still been awake, they might have sensed it, a fleeting ripple in the air around them. They might have heard the muffled groans of their comrades, smelt the strange odor, pungent, damp, rotten. But all slept soundly, at least until... They awoke instantly at the horrible scream.
1: Candles! Someone please, light the… By Thor's hammer, what has happened here?
2: The moment the candles were lit, the King wished he could blow them out again. Before him was carnage he'd never seen before, even in all his years of battle. The limbs of his men were cast about the hall. Some were slit open at the belly, like a slain boar being prepared for the spigot. Heads were ripped clean off. Blood decorated the floors, the walls, the tables, the gold and jeweled decorations. A red trail led to the great wooden door that now hung open letting a draft of cool air wash into the bitter and tingling scent of the slaughter. The bloody path led out the door and into the woods. Whatever left it had made no effort to cover its tracks, but none among them dared follow it. When they finished clearing the hall, 30 bodies were stacked high outside the door, The servants wiped the blood from the floors and walls and jewels until nothing remained but the memory of that terrible night. Even that they suppressed as best they could, speaking of it only in subdued whispers, and even those dwindled to veiled illusion.
1: The only thing to do, my king, is feast again. Aye. Perhaps it will show the thing we are not afraid. It will show the men that we are not afraid. They tremble now, even in the light of day. A trembling hand cannot hold a sword. But a trembling hand at least belongs to a living thing.
2: The king agreed with Asherah, his most trusted advisor. There was little he could do but hold another feast. They drank but their eyes darted ever to the doorway. They ate, but in precious, careful bites. They spoke, but their voices were hushed and stern. And when the first men unrolled their beds to go to sleep, they did so at the deepest part of the hall, as far away from the entrance as they could be. That night, as the men lay awake, they heard the whispers, They saw the cryptic shadow frantically dancing across the wall against the pale moonlight. They saw the silhouette of a man being lifted off the ground, back arched in agony. They heard his pained cry, but they dared not move. In the morning, they scrubbed the hall clean of blood once more. On the third night, some of the men went after the thing. They followed it into the woods and heard what they thought was laughter before they were torn to pieces. After some time, Hrothgar and his men began to go insane. The whispers followed them into the daylight. Shadows danced where there were none. The rustle of leaves caused fits of hysteria Ashara said,
1: What can we do but have a feast?
2: Hrothgar said,
1: It will let the men know we are not afraid.
2: Then the winter came, but not even the snow betrayed the creature's footsteps. He scoured the outbuildings and tore apart those who slept in their own home. Ashara said,
1: What can we do but drink away our worries?
2: Hrothgar said,
1: It will let the men know we are not afraid.
2: The year passed, the leaves grew green and fell again. They barred the door. They left offerings, gold and weapons and women. They tried to speak to it with sense. But how does one speak to the night itself? For twelve long years the demon came and went until all the best men were but faint whispers and the wealthiest houses empty and hollow. Asherah said,
1: What can we do but lead with dignity?
2: Hrothgar said,
1: But the men know we are afraid.
2: And so the hope drained from Hrothgar as the sleep drained from the scream-filled nights. His kingdom was in shreds his people terrified and he could not look them in the eye and promise their safety.
1: May you wake up on the morrow.
2: That was the best tidings he could muster. May you wake up on the morrow. Then came the ship that gave him posture, the ship that filled his heart with hope anew. Over the deck leapt a great warrior, by sight alone, they knew he was the greatest soldier they had ever seen. He was a Geat, and many other strong-backed Geats followed at his side. They called him Beowulf. When asked why they donned their armor, Beowulf smirked with brandied confidence.
4: I am the nephew and Thane of Hoyalach, king of the Geats, longtime friend of Hrothgar. I have come to rid you of the nightmare that haunts the darkness, the shadow that maims, the one they call Grendel.
2: Up next, we'll meet the monster that haunts the Great Hall of Herod.
1: At Outback Steakhouse,
2: your wish is our command. Back by popular demand, Steak and Lobster at a special price starting at 19 dollars Come enjoy our bold, center-cut sirloin seasoned with our signature blend of 17 spices and paired with a buttery, succulent lobster tail. Hurry into Outback Steakhouse where your Steak and Lobster wishes come true at a price you can't miss. Steak and Lobster, starting at 19 dollars No rules, just right. Now back to the story. In his famous 1936 analysis of Beowulf, author J.R.R. Tolkien points out the obvious, but rather extraordinary point, that the monsters are meant to be at the center of the story. This was strictly counter to our understanding of the works of the unknown poets' Greek and Roman counterparts, mainly Virgil and Homer. The epic poetry of the Mediterranean used monsters as obstacles, tests of will against the hero's strength. So it's obvious why many scholars cast aside this idea in Beowulf and were quick to judge the writing as primitive, a poor excuse of proper literary form. By dismissing Beowulf, they missed the point of its decision to prioritize its beasts over its heroes. They miss the fact that those beasts' origins and ultimate fate turn a reflective lens on humanity itself. When the tribe told me of Beowulf's arrival on the shore, I was sitting up straight. My face leaned uncomfortably close to the fire. Who was this pagan specimen, this hero from Sweden? But they said, It would be wrong to tell of Beowulf's battle without understanding the thing that he fought. And so they began the story of Grendel, the enemy of mankind.
0: It was a curse they placed. That terrible, wretched curse cast down from the ultimate judgment. What a judge he must be conniving and all-knowing, banishing the children of a time long-forgotten to the same fate as their long-forgotten kin. Poor Grendel. They judged before he took a breath. Poor Grendel. They doomed to a life of pain and regret.
2: Grendel's fate. His weird, as it was known in Old English, was inexorably and undeniably tied to his first ancestor, the first murderer.
0: Cain was his name, Cain the Kinslayer, who cut his brother down and stood in his blood as the church banished him.
2: The nomads knew not of the new god, the righteous ways of his hand, But I saw in the threads of the story what they meant about Grendel's ancestor. Those of us who knew the old gods and the new understood the fate of Cain. He was banished to the land of Nod, east of the Garden of Eden. He became corrupt and morphed into the decrepit manifestation of his terrible sin. His sons and daughters were monstrous by nature with reptilian skin and the strength of great beasts. Their faces had eyes and noses and mouths, and they walked on two legs, but little else of them resembled humanity. Over time, their ambiguous form became more malleable and shifty. They were not spirits, but neither were they truly solid. And so this perverse evolution continued, with Cain's offspring growing more and more terrible with each passing generation, until at last Grendel's mother bore him by a red and treacherous moonlight. So sinuous and shifty was he that his mother could hardly hold the creature. He walked after only a few days and was quick to explore the furthest reaches of the land.
0: But the noise, the noise, the giants and their terrible noise, their cackles, their grunts, the screams, their brutish destruction and trembling movements.
2: Grendel became their opposite.
0: Grendel became like the
2: mist. The giants did not like such a sneaking beast as this. They would catch him, two at a time because of his great strength, and bind him to a tree with metal chains. When they stabbed him with the ends of their swords, he would drip reddish black blood, but he would never wail.
0: Silent Grendel would be always silent even as steel prodded his festering
2: wounds. But Grendel was always changing. Soon his skin crusted over with reptilian armor. Spikes formed on his shoulders, his arms, his legs. His fingers became claws as sharp as knives. His eyes burned with hatred for the giants, for the sins of his father, for all of mankind. Then, when the giants prodded him, their swords clanged against his hardened shell, and when they swung with force enough to lop off his arm, the weapon shattered in their hands. They shrugged as giants shrug, quick to forget, quick to move on, and went about their giant business, leaving Grendel strapped to the tree. But the demon was like the mist.
0: He slithered through the chain. He found the giants who caused him pain. He slit and sliced and left them slain. He fled with little malice and no disdain.
2: Grendel traveled then to fight the Fen where his mother lived With spirits and monsters, all of the Earth's degraded creatures were welcome in that boggy marsh. They were gentle, that group, and haunted and alone. They moved through the night with wily determination, feasting and flowing with the natural order of things. They looked upon Grendel and gave him respect. But this is not the thing that filled him with a strange and unfamiliar warmth. Rather, it was the lack of something. The lack of noise. The silence of the
0: wood. Oh, what a world Grendel had found. He could hear the sounds of the nocturne, the crunch of his mangy feet against the grass, the breath of rodents the burbling of the marshy fen.
2: This was peace as Grendel had not known, the world to which he belonged, found after years of torture, years of punishment for his mere existence. But then came the men, those terrible Danes. Their battles assaulted his ears. Their war cries echoed in his mind. Their horses trampled the insects that sang in the night, bringing an end to Grendel's beloved silence. And when the battle was over, the building began. And when the building was built, the celebration echoed into the night. Night after night. Grendel forgot the sounds of the night creatures. The secrets whispered in the wind the soft hiss the grass made when he walked through it. Grendel's hatred bubbled forth again from the place it had been stored. He hid in the woods and heard the one called Hrothgar boast to the puppets before him.
3: We are proof of the glory of man, proof of our ability to conquer, proof that there are no lands we cannot take.
0: This is the path of the righteous. The descendants of Abel, the ones who the judge deemed to be just, the one who speaks as such shall suffer most.
2: They cut down the trees. They killed his friends, the rodents and crickets and birds. They muddied the shores and drove even the most friendly beasts into a deep cave of solitude. Every day was a reminder of what he was not. Every day he lived as Cain, exiled to the fringes, watching a supposed paradise with seething jealousy and distance and drooling resentment. Every night he dreamt of tasting their blood, until the night he snapped and walked into the night. He was sure then that the noise would stop, that the men would leave. But the next night, the festivities returned, and Grendel went to kill again, and again, and again. Forever, Grendel swears to kill again,
0: to stop the noise, to hold their progress at bay and taste their blood until they flee to their primordial past. Grendel swears forever to be the enemy of man.
2: We'll see Grendel's famed confrontation with Beowulf in a moment. Now back to the story. The physical form of the monster Grendel has been the subject of rigid debate among scholarly circles. Most agree that he's relatively humanoid in form, that is, bipedal. But that's about where the agreed-upon description ends. Some argue that he is massive and deformed. Some interpret him as being more like a troll. Some even go so far as to suggest that he's a type of humanoid dragon. The physical form matters because it helps us to understand what Grendel was meant to symbolize. The anonymous author of Beowulf asserts that Grendel is from the lineage of Cain, who in the Old Testament famously murders his brother Abel. This brings up an interesting point. Though Beowulf is set in the pagan past of Scandinavia, the author of the book inputs some decisively Christian themes. The idea of a singular almighty, the story of Cain, the protection and blessings of God the Father. But the poem also has some strong pagan elements and ideologies. Pride, tribal living, the ever proximate presence of death. It therefore represents the dichotomy and blending of these two religious worlds. This is clearly seen in Grendel, whose role as the offspring of a kinslayer viciously offends both the Christian and pagan morality. It is the ultimate betrayal, the terrible manifestation of jealousy. And for this reason, Grendel's actions must be punished.
4: What I mean, dear noble Hrothgar, is that if the beast wears no armor, I shall wear no armor. If the demon wields no weapons, then I shall meet it with my bare hands.
3: I heard you well enough the first time, young Beowulf, but I still think it
4: ill-advised. Which is why you are king and not an advisor. But, dear king, you say you have not seen this thing? I have not. And swinging your swords wildly into the darkness has yielded little results? Less than little. And it has shredded through your men, no matter what armor they have worn like a knife through a turnip. Then why, dear king, would I succumb myself to the same conditions that lost you hundreds of your best?
2: The king knew not how to argue against the warrior's logic. So he sipped his mead, but started to worry about the sanity of their supposed savior. Surely the Geet was mad with confidence. To fight such a beast with no protection, no means of defense, It was madness, though he did have to admit after 12 long years the finest armor had done little to stop Grendel from his acts of terror. More importantly, as the king looked across the hall, he saw something long forgotten amongst his tribe, the look of joy. They gathered around this Beowulf and fawned at his words. They threw back their mead like it was a decade prior and wrapped their arms around each other in the show of brotherhood. It reminded Hrothgar of the old days when they shared bountiful cups before battle. There was little like the tradition of preparing the men for a dangerous endeavor by drinking themselves in a drunken stupor. Indeed, all the men were happy All kept their cups to the brim, that is, except for Unferth, whose pinched face looked over the brim of his goblet with a furrowed and darkened brow. When he spoke, his words squeaked with a strange shrill that cut through the hall. I have heard
0: of you, Beowulf the Geat. I have heard of your exploits. Your talk of tests of strengths and battles won. But what of your failures? A fairy on the wind once told me that you joined in a race through the sea against Brekka, that geet, your friend, who is average in strength and average in mind. When, after a week passed, the race came to a finish, Brekka emerged from the ocean victorious while you had yet to even breach the horizon.
2: The crowd shifted uneasily. Hrothgar tensed and gripped the arm of his chair. In that hall, they all knew Breca, and he was, as Unferth said, not necessarily impressive in any way. If it was true that Beowulf had lost this race... There was little hope this champion could beat Grendel.
4: Aye, it's true I swam for a week. But did they tell you, dear Unferth, that I swam in full chainmail to keep things even? Did they tell you that I would have won were I not dragged under by nine horrible sea beasts? Nine beasts that I did draw my sword upon and slay in the depths of the ocean Nine beasts that washed ashore that very next day. Nine, dear unfirth. But you're right. Brekka did earn the victory in the race that day. But it was I who won the glory.
3: Huzzah! Huzzah! He's too humble. I heard it was 10. A true feat to fight the beasts of the sea. A warrior, a hero. Not like that unfirth who won't even sleep in the hall!
2: As they all gathered around Beowulf and slapped his back, Unferth slank back to his corner. Now, filled again with energy, Hrothgar stood and shouted,
3: To Beowulf! The champion that shall save us all! To Beowulf!
2: And with that, Hrothgar retired to his chambers. The men started to bed down, exhausted from their drink, happy to have found celebration once more. All of them had forgotten the fear that had kept them close company for those long years. The shadow moved through the wood with its sinister grace. Mist shrouded the thing, leaving tendrils of white wrapped around the wood. It seemed like a black cloud cutting through the damp air.
0: Grendel thought they learned. Grendel thought the noise was gone. But the vile creatures brought the noise back. And now they must learn again the folly of disturbing the slumber of Middle-earth.
2: Grendel's rage was scouring. He would rip every last human in that hall to shreds. He thought they understood his wrath. He thought they knew to stay silent. But now they celebrated again. After tonight, they would truly understand. The door felt him coming and swept open. Before anything could so much as stir, he ripped one man in half and sliced open the stomach of another. His fiery eyes scanned the shadows and his claws reached out to grab a third, but instead of the clank of metal, he felt flesh. And then, something the beast was completely unprepared for, the iron grip of a human hand that clasped his forearm and squeezed. Grendel shrieked. It was not so much the pain as the surprise. He tried to pull away, but this thing, whatever it was, held him far too tight. So Grendel did the only thing he could. He gripped and pulled. Beowulf locked eyes with the Devil Spawn in front of him, or at least what he thought were eyes. They were red and desperate and flickered and waned like a snapping fire. They shifted this way and that, as though not entirely attached to its head. The thing looked as darkness. Its shadowy outline was difficult to make out against the faint candlelight. Its skin looked sharp and pointed all over, as though covered in tiny knives. In fact, he could feel that sharpness. Its rough jacket chafed beneath his grip as it gripped him back. Its claws dug into his skin, tearing his flesh. Beowulf knew that there was no way out for either of them. This fight would start and end with the stronger grip. A true show of strength. So he gritted his teeth, dug his feet into the ground, and pulled, and pulled, and pulled. <laughs> <laughs> Beowulf heard the beast's bones snap. Its grip loosened only slightly, but Beowulf only kept pulling until the fibers of muscle elongated and tore, the tendons split, and Grendel's arm ripped clean off. Grendel's cry was horrible and piercing as it cut through the hall, through the village, through the countryside. The demon fled Herod then, leaving a thick trail of blood pouring from his wound. The men rejoiced. Beowulf had succeeded where so many else had failed. They lauded him with praise— Hrothgar promised him all the wealth he could imagine. Even Unferth managed a weak word of adulation. When the morning light came, the men followed the trail of blood to the fen where Grendel lived. The fen filled with spirits and monsters that now lay hidden with their champion so humiliatingly defeated. There they saw the corpse of the enemy of man and they breathed a 12 year sigh of relief. None looked at the body for too long, for even in death, its form was sinisterly foreign. As quickly as they came, they turned on their heels and briskly walked back to Hayrat, failing to notice the eyes barely breaching the surface of the lake, watching them with monstrous intentions, already planning her torturous revenge. Grendel, the first monster of Beowulf, is a curious nemesis. He seems not to want anything except silence. He does not take gold or jewels as a bribe or an act of robbery. He never makes demands or any of his intentions known. He's merely a spirit of death, whisking men away from the night, punishing them solely for their temptation toward revelry. This proposes the idea that Grendel is more of a force than a being, a cosmic retribution, the punishment nature imbues on man when he loses his connection with his creator. The monsters of northern mythology often embody the existential fears of the Scandinavian people. Their dense and foggy wood was the world of spirits, of unknown creatures, whose intentions seemed deliberate, yet Byzantine. We'll see this next week with a monster whose first concern seems to be compassion, but ultimately proves to be far more treacherous than even her son. This monster is Grendel's mother, the second of Beowulf's fearsome opponents. Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology. We'll be back Tuesday with Part 2 of Beowulf. You can find more episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythology, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythology on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythology in the search bar. If you enjoy Mythology, especially this episode, you'll love my other podcast, Mythical Monsters. Every week we dive into the origin of a terrifying, legendary monster and why we fear them. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with part two of this epic tale. Mythology was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Mythology was written by Drew Cole, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Sky King, Harris Markson, and Dan Velasquez. I'm Vanessa Richardson.